This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, ladies and gentlemen, you're tuning in to another smooth episode of Equity Mates. As I crooned, the best is yet to come and babe, won't that be fine? Whether you're just starting out or you're already swinging with the big cats, we're here to guide you through the world of investing with style. As always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren, and who am I? Bryce, I believe you're Frank Sinatra. Well played. <laughs> uh, D- fitting didn't know that- you were the, uh, the jazz type. Fitting that you're talking about swinging with the big cats because we are <laughs> swinging with the big cats today. That's true. JP Morgan Asset Management, one of the biggest cats <laughs> in the financial game. We are going to be speaking to Kerry Craig, who is one of their global market strategists. And he and his team from around the world slave over this document uh, every year. It's called the Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions. And it's JP Morgan Asset Management's view on how the next decade is mm. going to play out in across asset classes, across geographies. It's basically their little crystal ball that then sets the parameters for the, what, $800 billion that yes. J.P. Morgan Asset Management yes. manages. So no pressure on this paper. I know. And so <laughs> we're going to be speaking to Kerry about everything that they have assumed and found and predicted for the next decade. So massive episode coming up. Yes, really looking forward to this one. Kerry is a returning guest and he always provides some really interesting insights out of this long-term capital markets assumptions paper. So a big thank you to J.P. Morgan Asset Management for supporting this episode and for supporting Equity Mates throughout the year. We do really appreciate the support. It helps us to provide uh, you guys with free content. Before we get stuck in, we must say that while we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal circumstances. So any information on this show is for entertainment and education purposes only. Any advice is general. Yeah. All right. Well, with that said, let's get ready uh, to talk to Kerry. We're going to be covering uh, the paper. We're going to be talking about some of the key themes that emerge from it. Monetary policy, Mm. interest rates and inflation, artificial intelligence, uh, what happens next in China, uh, the climate investment and uh, where that is going. So heaps to cover. So let's stop talking and get to the conversation with Kerry. Let's do it. Well, Kerry, welcome back to Equity Mates. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be back again. Now, Kerry, we're here today to talk about the long-term capital market assumptions uh, from JP Morgan Asset Management. It's the, in the 28th year. So to kick it off, can you just introduce us to what the long-term capital market assumptions series is? Sure. It's actually something that is an internal process. So when we think about portfolio construction, portfolio management throughout JP Morgan, it'll always start with what's our long-term view on asset class returns, what's our long-term views on volatility, how do we put all those risks together in terms of constructing a portfolio. So, you know, 28 years ago or even longer, we were doing this for our internal processes for portfolio managers. And then 
over time, we've had more clients and, and people ask us around how we do this, how we construct these uh, views. And so we've just started publishing it. Uh, we've started making it quite transparent and how we build up the numbers around what our equity returns are, what our fixed income returns are, what we think about the macro environment, and also you know talk about the themes we think will matter for the coming decade in terms of how does that actually transpire in terms of what it might mean for investing over that time period. So it's something that's actually used internally. There's about $800 billion of US money that's actually behind or is influenced by this in JP Morgan across our um, asset and wealth management businesses. It is a case of eating our own cooking when it comes to these numbers. Uh, and so it's something we just have uh, a greater conversation with about clients who are thinking around long-term uh, wealth creation and what asset classes go together to create that. 800 billion behind it. No pressure on oh, pulling it together. Just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. This is the portfolio managers. I don't, I don't actually have an influence that. I wish I did. I'd be paid a lot more. But uh, no. So we're going we're gonna to cover off some of the key, um, I guess, forecasts and assumptions and some of the key themes as well that you've written about uh, monetary policy, inter interest rates and inflation, AI, of course, China, climate. There's a lot of big themes that we're going to talk about. But before we look forward, uh, we just wanted to look back and sort of get your view on the year that was. And, you know, it, it feels like it feels like the last two years, a, a lot has changed and a lot has happened. So how would you sum up uh, everything we've just lived through? Yeah, there's been a, a remarkable amount of like economic and market volatility in the last couple of years. And uh it's a bit like going to the playground with my kid, right? You're on the seesaw, it's up and down, it's up and down, and that's how it's been in the markets and for economies. It's been, oh, they're going to hike rates, they're not going to hike rates. Oh, inflation's coming down, no, it's going back up. Oh, risk sentiments on, risk sentiments off. But a lot of that volatility that's been created has been in the places you don't want it. It's been in the fixed income market, it's been in those things that you want to be defensive. Um, and while it's also been in the equity market and only pockets of those segments, so you're getting these concerns around concentration risk and distortion. So it's been unnerving for investors who have thinking about we're at the end of, of a cycle, we're heading for a recession and then suddenly having to grapple with, oh, the, the cycle's been extended, we're not heading for a recession. What are the opportunities there? So it's been a very up and down view of, of the world in terms of both the macro landscape and also the, the investing landscape, which has been a big challenge for investors. Mm. But in the volatility, there's opportunity if you can play it right. <laughs> you should be a portfolio manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if JP Morgan are hiring, we can talk. <laughs> So does the performance of the last sort of 12 months then in terms of economic activity, performance of the market, how does that sort of reflect how you then think about the longer term, does it play a part in the capital market or the long-term capital market assumptions? It does, it does. We're thinking around both how we uh, strip out the cyclical effects in terms of thinking about asset class returns. So a lot of our forecasts are based on the cycle neutral view of if we try and remove all those factors that influence things, depending on where you are in the business cycle, here's what asset class returns should be. Uh, and then we realise, well, we have to take account of where we actually are in the cycle. We have to think about the starting point for equity valuations across that market markets compared to what we think fair value is over the long run for these things. We have to contemplate where bond yields are as a starting point and where we think they'll be again over that decade. So you get this process of either, for example, bond yields falling to where we think they should be. So that increases the return prospects. So the starting point very much matters. Uh, and similarly, when we think about equity valuations, how far away are we from that fair value to see that normalization process, which may lift or detract from those returns. So there's definitely an element of, of where we are and the starting point that influences this. But again, for the construction of a portfolio, we're trying to focus on that cycle neutral base. And then if you're thinking more around a tactical allocation, it's the cyclical part that you're trying to influence or, or bear in mind when you're making that allocation. 
Mm. Well, let's not keep people in suspense too long. Uh, you and the team around the world have spent a lot of time uh, working on this paper and have got a number of important assumptions. Where should we start? What are some of the, like the, the headlines that uh, we should be aware of from this report? I think there's there's a couple just we'll touch on briefly. And honestly, to be clear, there's a, a, a lot more, many more brighter minds than me that actually have a lot greater input to this. This is something that is across all our different investment desks, across all our different uh, investment specialist analysts who contribute to this. So it is very much a whole of JP Morgan uh, product that's being built. There's three things that really stand out in terms of or what we think about. We always start with... How does just a really standard 60-40 portfolio of 60% equities, 40% bonds, if you just marry two big global indices together, what does that return you? Uh, in this year's numbers, in US dollar returns, it returns you 7%. So 7% annualized for a decade, you double your money. That's really good, right? That's a really good starting point. So initially, it's kind of thinking around, actually, there's a pretty good prospect for, for generating good wealth creation over the next decade. When we did this exercise two years ago, that number was a little bit over 4% because we were coming from a point where everything was really expensive, bond yields were very low, uh, and we had greater concerns around the, the macro outlook. But with that, that 7%, that 60-40, that's what I classify as, as everyone and no one's portfolio. No one owns 60% <laughs> equities, 40% bonds. It's always something around that. So it's how we think about what you can do to beat those returns, what you can do to enhance those returns or maybe mitigate some of the risks that are associated with them. So first off, it's about extending. We think about extending out of cash because we're starting with cash rates that are very high and the RBA doesn't want to pay you 4.35% on your cash. The Federal Reserve doesn't want to pay you 5.5% for your cash. They want to have much lower returns. So again, we have to think about the long run. Those cash levels and cash rates are going to be much lower. So we need to extend away from cash, even though right now it could be appealing because people like the volatility out there, I'm uncertain, so if I sit in cash and don't have to make a decision, that's great. doesn't create your wealth in the long run. Then we think about expanding. The biggest one I think comes through in terms of what we've seen more recently is that positive stock bond correlation in the wrong way. That really means it's been difficult in terms of thinking around fixed income markets haven't performed like we've wanted them to, um, and equity markets that have also underperformed. So again, that, that drag that's been created. So by expanding the asset set and thinking about other assets, either it's in terms of alternatives or real assets or physical assets, how they can diversify some of that inflation risk away that we think is going to be more prevalent. We can come on to that. Or that's thinking about fixed income becoming a greater part of your portfolio again that hasn't been something that's featured given the, the very unappealing nature of low yields and, and uh, duration risk that it's presented. So we do definitely think about how we can then expand our opportunity set. And finally, it's, a, it's about being more active and enhancing that through more active management, whether it's thinking about being active across public equities and, and fixed income or private markets. We're going from a world where it has been around uh, central banks, as the buyer of last resort, the lender of last resort, whatever you want to call it, repression of interest rates, providing huge amounts of liquidity, which haven't necessarily had a positive economic outcome, very positive market outcome, and then moving to a world where that liquidity is going away, central bank's role is going to be very different, and capital is going to be a little bit more scarce. And it's going to be allocated to those things which are going to generate those returns uh, and have those stronger profit motives behind it. So that's going to create you know, a bit of disparity across the market where a bit more being active is obviously going to enhance that sort of alpha and that um, return generation portfolio. So extend, enhance, expand. I think those are the big themes that are coming out this year in terms of what marketing tells me to say. <laughs> I love it when you can sum it up in like a pithy three, like yeah. three E's, extend, yeah. enhance, expand. Yeah, they're all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so um, there are a few few things uh, in there. You, you mentioned 
interest rates and inflation and we're going to talk about themes there. So I think let's park that, but I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there. I guess more generally when you're putting this together, is there anything, uh, any of this, the assumptions that you think, oh, that's going to surprise the market or that's against consensus or we're thinking quite differently to some of our peers uh, in other asset managers or other investment banks? Yeah, I think uh, one of the ones that stands out in terms of uh, our return numbers this year is really around uh, some of the property market returns. So we've seen um, somewhat of a, a move around valuations and a markdown in those assets. Uh, you know, many people have more sceptical views perhaps around the return to work and the office space, you know, what might happen with uh, the residential market. Um, you know, we see those structural shifts being influential, but maybe not being as strong as, as what people say. So when we look at our return forecasts, they're a lot, lot higher. Actually, the, the US core real estate number is almost 200 basis points higher than what we thought last year. And that creates an opportunity. And we do get a lot of people looking at that and going, you know, we probably think there's a lot more risk there than, than this would let on. Um, you know, so there's those numbers that stand out. Uh, and then some of the other ones are more around like the numbers look a bit low. We think there's actually uh, a lot more potential return here in terms of some of the asset classes, or we think that that, that theme around AI and, and technology and productivity. I think we're underestimating that and what that terms of it means. So we have to be modest because these are called assumptions. Mm. Uh, so it is our view and how we interpret them. And so everyone else is going to have a different view. Mm. Yeah. So there are four key investing thematics that are emerging from the paper and we'd like to kind of unpack them in detail. But just to kind of signpost it, we have uh, monetary policy, artificial intelligence, China and climate. Now, you said uh, a few moments ago that you think inflation risk will be more prevalent. So let's start with monetary policy. How do you see inflation playing out and I guess the, the impact there on interest rates? Absolutely. I mean, you just got to start, and we, this is we, the starting point for us when it comes to looking at the, the outlook for interest rates is just ask yourself the question, do you think the central banks are still credible in achieving their goals over the long run? I Ooh. think we, I think if you asked us that question now and you ask us that question in 18 months, we may get different answers. So this is the starting point. Like, <laughs> it's, it's important for people who have recently just bought homes. <laughs> yeah. If you do have the view that we think that central banks are still credible, that you know the RBA's two to three percent ban, the Fed's two percent target. Uh, if you think that they're credible enough to achieve those over the long run and they're not going to change those targets, you know, that's a different discussion, then you know, our view is that inflation will be pretty much close to that 2% over that long run. And there's going to be a, a variety of factors which push and pull you away from that number that are much more qualitative, uh, and we can walk through those, but it does lead you to believe that if that inflation number is close to the target, if not a little bit above, then we're shifting away from an era where the last decade was all about you know, why inflation wasn't high enough, why it was always undershooting the that uh, and the drags that created that disinflation in the economy, whereas now we're shifting to that idea, well, inflation's probably going to be a little bit higher, those policy rates are going to be a, a little bit higher, and there's more upside risk to that inflation, so therefore we think about those policy rates being elevated, but it's really about the fact that we're going to have greater two-way risk around that inflation outlook, and that's, again, somewhat of a shift than what we thought in the past, and again, a matter of thinking about how we uh, build a portfolio to hedge against that risk. I don't think you answered your own question there. Do you think central banks are still credible? <laughs> yes, we do. So okay. our starting yeah, point yeah, is, yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> we do think they're still no. credible. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we still think those uh, inflation numbers, so for example, for Australia, our long run uh, inflation number is 2.4%. So pretty close to the midpoint of the of the target band. And the US, it's 2.5%. It's slightly higher than last year, because we'll go through some of the reasons why. But it's not too far from that. And it's much lower than you know where it was uh, you know 12 months ago. Mm. Yeah. And I'm I mean, yeah, the US came in at 3.2%. Yeah. Australia has been behind the curve 
all the way. The whole time. And so, you know, but it's still going down. But we're incredibly short-term in financial media and I say we knowing that, you know, we're short-term here, we're responding to the news of the day. But it's been a couple of years of inflation in a very long-run disinflationary period and some of those forces aren't going away. Yeah, you can think, well, have a think about the, the, the forces that created that, that weakness in inflation and why it was at one and a half or, you know, one and three quarters and not 2% for such a, a very long period of time. I think the RBA undershot its inflation target for like six years. So you had uh, obviously the rise of globalisation, which, you know, moving to low-cost production uh, and, and pulling those prices down and, and the effect that it had on uh, the price of labour around the world as well. Uh, you've had fiscal policy that's been more around austerity, particularly in Europe, uh, for a long period of time and now that's shifting. Um, You've had income inequality that's been a big drag. So wealthier households tend to buy assets and not physical goods and services. So that's been a drag on that. Uh, you had commodity prices that were moving in the wrong direction until you know fairly recently, and that was a drag. You know, unionisation rates that were falling, uh, inflation expectations that were just weaker, um, and not being fed back into wage growth and those aspects of the economy. And then other things like you know e-commerce and uh, automation all create drags on that inflation mm. outlook. And these are all the challenges that, in the last decade, that central banks have been challenging when they're just trying to push up you know a bit more inflation a bit more growth in the economy and you can run through each of those in that list and think about well some of those are still drags some of those are still minuses but deglobalization seems to be a bigger theme now we're thinking about the impact of um you know friendshoring reshoring that's going to be inflationary it's going to be a cost of that governments are much more willing to spend money now especially around sustainability uh and again if the the, the things that are produced the most cheaply and you always produce the most environmental manner if you add some regulatory impacts on that so cross-border adjustment mechanism out of europe which is binding legally and it's going to come to a force a couple of years you know those things mean higher input prices higher pass-through rates for inflation they create that inflation in the short term inflation expectations if you think inflation's high you're thinking about your wages do i need to demand mm. higher wages mm. all these things have gone from drags to ads when it comes to that inflation outlook but when we put that against that 10 to 15 year view you have to say well they're not all going to be there at the same time and they're not all going to be the same magnitude. So that creates a lot of volatility around that inflation number. So if it was 2.4% in Australia, it's going to be a below and above that. And we feel there's going to be periods of time where it's going to be above that for an extended period of time and then go down. Yeah. So it's that... Um, shift in the regime from thinking about very low inflation to thinking about inflation that's going to be sporadically higher and create the troubles that we've seen in the last you know 18 months or so in terms of markets. Whether or not you think that central bankers are credible, I do not envy the job that they have for the next mm. decade because all the focus is on them and it's all downside for them. Like if they get it right, that's the expectation and... Well, you know, short term, if they pull off a soft landing, they don't do that very often. And yeah, uh, yeah. if it does come through, there'll probably be a few high fives around, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said there your long-term uh, assumption for Australian inflation is in the mid-twos. Mm. What does the, what's your long-term assumption for the cash rate? Uh, it's 2.7. So, uh, oh, so you think it'll come wow. down? It's Yeah, yeah, it's kind of come down. The US is 2.5. So uh, it's slightly positive, which I think is the, the more important part. That inflation 2.4, we have 2.7. So it's Do you have a time positive. frame on that? Oh, when it's going to come down? Yeah. Your, your specific mortgage repayments are going to yeah. start to come oh, down. I'm just going to... Bryce wants it to be harder, so he's going to fix. Well, right? he's like, you, know, <laughs> you can deviate to the short term for a little bit. You think about this. So uh, typically when the Federal Reserve starts cutting rates, and um, that's the narrative at the moment, the 
Federal Reserve is going to cut rates next year. We can debate whether that's going to happen, but many other central banks don't usually fall that far behind, right? They usually follow pretty closely. Um, although in the case of the RBA, they usually have quite an extended period of hold, which is much longer. So mm -hmm. they're going to be later to cut rates. So in the short term, we think it's going to be a later case for the RBA to cut rates. And when central banks start cutting rates, they usually do so pretty aggressively because it means there's either something wrong with the economy and they have to prop up growth, or they're trying to uh, normalize those policy rates pretty quickly. So again, I think it's a case of when they do start cutting, it's going to happen pretty quickly when they're going to go back down to those levels. Just before this interview, I was reading that Bill Ackman's put a bet on that they'll be cutting by March next year. <laughs> yeah, they seem to be creeping forward, those estimates. It's crazy. Uh, I think that's, again, some of the uncertainty, the near term, that volatility that we're going to be dealing with for at least a few more quarters. Uh, it just it surprises me that you that the long term assumption is in the twos, unless it is because you know the there's been demand destruction and the economy's in a recession and all, all of that. But it doesn't give central banks a lot of dry powder. It doesn't you know give them a lot of room to move if things do go wrong. Bro, they can go back to zero. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> then they can start doing fine. QE again. <laughs> yeah. there's, been, there's been a bit of a, a bit of a get out of jail free card here with all this inflation. I know it's been painful in many aspects of, of markets and, and personal life in terms of what it means for, for homeowners and households, but it does mean that you can think about shifting away from zero interest rate policies, negative interest rate policies, having to use the balance sheet to prop up the economy. So we do feel that's a, another big shift that's going to come through because it's going to be government spending and, and the fiscal side that supports growth creates that inflation. So it does mean that central banks aren't going to have to cut their rates as far because that inflation is going to be there in the economy. So it's that dynamic that plays through of more fiscal, less monetary. On the fiscal side, um, it it's always seems to be a question and uh, it never seems to be an issue, but maybe at some point it does become an issue. Do you think about government debt? And uh, I know you, you never have a financial crisis if you can print your way out of um, debt, but uh, it does, you know, more and more of government budgets are going to debt repayments. Do, do you think that that could ever become a drag on, you know, this this spending that you sort of see coming? Yeah, I mean, the, the US seems to be a, uh, like quite an extreme case. If you look at their forecast from the CBO in terms of how much money goes to the primary deficit versus how much goes towards thinking about just the net interest costs. And if you look at that over to, you know, 20, 30 something, effectively, they're going to run out of money uh, if they pay all their entitlements and, and what's left over. Um, for us, and it was a clear case of thinking about, well, should we have more of a premium built into thinking about the term premium and the shape of the yield curve, that there's going to be more supply to, to fund a lot of the, the investment that's required to reach net zero goals or some of those nationalistic policies around defence or technology investment. Um, and the answer was like, well, a couple of years ago, we actually did shift it up because we thought about that. And why didn't we shift it up further this year? Because we have ageing populations who have greater demand for income products who are going to want to soak up all those bonds. We've got um, many financial institutions who have had an underweight to fixed income who are now looking at how to extend into that duration and can see the much bigger returns you get from fixed income and are going to create that demand there. So we think there'll be ample demand to slow up that supplies. We haven't added any more into that term premium and thinking about why you know the 10-year yield shouldn't be higher in our forecasts um, and, and thinking about uh, how that may be addressed. But there is going to be, I think, pressures around still the short term and thinking around you know market questioning of debt sustainability. But for us in the long run, I think there's ample demand that's going to come through to, to address that. Mm. Well, let's move to the second theme that's uh, emerged from the paper, which is around artificial intelligence, one of the hottest topics of 2023. So how do you see AI impacting your long-term capital market assumptions? 
Uh, it's, it's a great one. And it's one where we're, we're very humble in understanding and estimating just how wide the impact this could have on the economy. So we went back and we looked at other sort of enhancements in technology and, and the impact. Or we went right back and look at the steam engine and think about what that did. So it's all much about how this becomes a big general purpose technology. Right now, it's kind of like sort of, you know, some segments of the economy, you can see it being played through and you can see how it's working. Uh, many companies are talking about, you know, what it can mean for them and what they could do, but there's, you know, a bit untested in some regards. So we have lifted our productivity estimates, which lifts our growth across the developed world because we think it's more of a developed world phenomenon at the moment. Um, so we added, uh, sounds really small, but about 10 basis points to growth uh, over the annualized forecast, which is quite modest, but you know, we're thinking, well, maybe it could be 100 basis points if this really does play out. It's going to add a full percentage point to growth every year for the next decade. But again, we're not sure exactly within that forecast horizon when it does materialize. There's been a lot of talk around regulation, which could slow down the adoption. There's been a lot of concerns around you know, what it actually means to the labor market, and it could lead to higher rates of unemployment in the near term, but effectively create more jobs in the long run. Think about you know, the internet and how many jobs are created for software or developers or you know, anything else, or social media influencers, or anything else you want to think of <laughs> yeah, in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's going to be um, a bit of a checks and balances at how this plays through, but ultimately we see it as being a lift to growth, therefore a lift to a lot of our return numbers, and if anything, presenting a much bigger upside risk to the numbers we currently forecast. Yeah, I mean the the classic example is Lotus One Two Three, the first like the pre precursor to Microsoft Excel, and everyone thought it would just ruin the accounting profession because something that took weeks now would take less than a day, and instead they led to a massive boon in accountants, and there's heaps more accountants than there were because just all these other jobs spun up around the software. Similar thing with uh, ATMs. So when they came out ATMs, everyone thought, well, that'll close banks. There'll be no need for bank tellers. And the opposite happened because you had bank tellers who then specialized in selling other oh, products oh, and yeah, banks. Yeah. More banks opened and more bank tellers got hired. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's changed today if you go online banking. But yeah, there was the weird thing about how it actually created more jobs than fewer jobs. And everyone thought, why have banks anymore if you can just go and get your money out of the wall? So with that clear caveat in mind that often we don't know the shape that technological adoption will take and how it will influence the world, when you're making these long-term assumptions around you know, changes in productivity and changes in the labour market, you have to make some assumption about technological adoption and what it will change. So how are you getting to that 10 basis points, 100 basis points, whatever it is, what are some of the assumptions in terms of how AI plays out? It's largely a lot of scenarios in terms of how widespread it is throughout the economy um, and also the other factors that might play out in terms of thinking about the impact on unemployment might rise in the short term because we do believe in the long run it actually leads to more job creation um, and thinking about perhaps more upskilling and value-add jobs as well. So you, you, the, the people who use AI you know, will be replaced by, by AI AI may actually, for example, their boss who uses it might add more value to their job, and so it actually has that positive uh, outcome in that regard. And then we do think it, it leads to you know better productivity, better growth, and, and therefore more consumption in the economy if everyone's uh, financially better off. So there's these kind of weird dynamics about when exactly it comes through, and so we think about those different scenarios, um, and that's why it's a really modest number. Well, we could see it being a massive upside, uh, and what we can do is really look back at those other technology enhancements that have happened over time and see, you know, what was the effect on the economy of, of these things coming through. And I guess the other one that we, we look at here is that as you look over time at different uh, parts of technology and, and the adoption rate, they have sped up. 
you know, like you can think about way back uh, <laughs> the adoption of different parts of technology. And again, everyone proxies the, the number of people who used, I guess, the chat GDP relative to other media forces and say they reached X number of users really quickly. It's that, again, that people are more willing to adopt these things. So that's also going to affect it in terms of the pace uh, of what comes through. At what point do you assume that uh, AI writes the capital market assumptions paper? Oh, man, I was out of a job about six months ago. <laughs> I'm actually not even here. This is all like, I don't know who's watching this. This is all fake. It's, it's well, all fake. we've tried to get AI to replicate our voice just to see how long until we get disrupted, and it's not quite there yet. It's coming, so, though. Yeah, it is coming. Well, they did that yeah. with my boss. So he's in Hong Kong, and they, they did it, and they thought like they got it to read out something he'd written, and he became a very much uh, like, I sound like an Oxford professor, which is amazing because okay. he just has no accent and they suddenly decided this guy's English. And uh, yeah. Well, I get criticized for pronouncing a number of words wrong, mirror and performance. And so AI can fix that for me. <laughs> but then they'll know it's not you. Put in the foils because that makes you more real. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how you know we're human. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've covered two themes. We've got two to go. And uh, this next one has been, you know, one of the, the, the biggest story of the last few decades in the global economy, China. And the last few years, we've seen a slow-moving property crisis that continues to be slowly moving. We've seen recently the Chinese central bank said they're going to do what they need to do to prop up domestic spending. Um, so I guess before we say ask where is China going, let's just ask where China is. And then from where you see it, where does it go? Right now, our view on China is it's, it's stabilizing. I mean, there's there's clearly been some incremental improvement in these policy metrics uh, throughout the course of the last year. Obviously, the disappointment with the reopening that didn't really happen, but the, the tolerance for the weakness in the property sector from Chinese officials seems to very much have faded, uh, given the fact that you're now seeing them sort of move much more into terms of thinking around, get more credit out there, start propping some of these people up, because they need to restore confidence in the economy. They need to restore consumer confidence, which is very much closely linked to the property prices, because that's a large portion of their wealth. Um, and they also need to then feed that through into thinking about credit creation and how companies want to um, behave, think about better demand, employing people. So they really need to restore that corporate and consumer confidence, which is all linked back to the property market and prices, and try and balance that out with not having prices that accelerate because common prosperity says homes are for living in, not for investing in. So it's a delicate act. So it just means they're going to be a stabilization of the economy, um, sequentially some more improvement. We expect it to do better on growth next year, but um, restoring that confidence confidence may take some time. And so then where do you see China going from here? Well, the structural point of view, from the very long term, they've got some massive headwinds around demographics, right? Uh, so they have uh, an aging population. Um, their productivity levels have actually fallen because they're much more capital intensive in terms of how they've driven their economy. Um, so our growth rates for, for China have been consistently lower in, in the last few years for the, for the emerging, sorry, for our GDP figures that come out. It's been moving from sort of, you know, fives to four and a half, and now it's at 3.8%, which is annualized over the next decade. So it's been that steady trend down because of those challenges and it's just becoming a more middling income economy and less of an emerging one. Um, so, you know, all developed markets have lower rates of growth because they've gone through that. That composition of growth, if they have those demographic challenges, has to be much more about enhancing that productivity 
goes back to a lot of their common prosperity goals around uh, developing a bigger technology sector, more value add, raising the GDP per capita, more consumption in the economy, not just selling things to the rest of the world. That all takes time and is yet unproven from a policy side of things. So that does mean we look at developed versus equity market, emerging markets. Emerging market growth numbers are still higher than we see in the emerging world, so we still expect the equity market returns to be very good. But compared to developed markets, that gap's starting to narrow a little bit uh, compared to what it was, especially as you think about the benefits of AI and growth to developed markets a bit more than emerging markets at the time. So a big trend that we've heard a number of global investors talk about is this, uh, you know, nearshoring or like I think friendshoring is one where you put a factory in an out a country that you're I really more really want someone with. in Australia to start calling mate shoring. Mate, that's not <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but essentially, it's all euphemisms for getting your supply chains out of China and getting them either closer to your border or in a in a different country. And we've seen. You know, Bangladesh and Vietnam benefit. We've, India, uh, yeah. Yeah, India, a big beneficiary. Before we talk about the winners, well, how do you, like, what size is that going to, what size of an effect will that have on China? Like, is it going to be enough to really matter? I mean, it's weird because it's it's obviously COVID and supply chains coming in much more focused. People wanted to shift things to the closer to the end consumer base. So they didn't have to worry about that. Then you had some of the geopolitical risk around actually accessing these things. And that didn't start with COVID. That started with back in 2017 with, you know, uh, the trade wars. And companies saw this coming, started shifting their supply chains to Vietnam and other parts of Asia. So already coming through, just that COVID accelerated the shock that was very much apparent. Um, and even since then, you've seen, um, you haven't seen a lot of that that trade narrative between China and the US or any of those restrictions really being reprieved. You haven't seen a lot of those things that got put in place. It feels like diplomacy is a bit stronger at the moment, but a lot of those underlying things didn't change. Let's see if in 12, we're speaking in November 2023. Let's see what we're saying in November yeah, 2024. Yeah. Do you have a yeah. very different, you'll, you'll know the outcome. Yeah, now, true, true, true. So I think it's a case of saying that yeah, the, the, the shifting of supply chains around the world, again, becomes a little bit more strategic in terms of semiconductor production, that kind of thing for governments as they think about you know, how important they are for almost every aspect of their economy and national defense as well, in the case of the US. And so it does mean that there's going to be a cost of that, so higher inflation as that deglobalization theme comes through. Um, and also, you know, it's going to favor some markets like Mexico. It's close to the US. It's going to be still a relatively cheaper place to produce uh, markets. Many Asian economies outside of China are going to benefit from that as well, as it's still an area where you still see a lot of rapid growth and uh, demand coming through, but um, is separated from some of that China narrative. Uh, and again, India is one of these ones you continue to see great demographic argument, going to see uh, perhaps better policies around trying to harness that demographic dividend and productivity and could be a beneficiary from that in the long run. So there's still uh, ample opportunity to play through emerging markets, a lot of these themes on the public side. And then you think about the private side, you're going to have to need a huge demand more for ships and shipping routes are going to change, new infrastructure investment, whether it's around you know, cables and fibre to support um, call centres or whether it's going to be around you know, new ports development to, to support all the new shipping routes. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways you can think about the investment opportunities from that. How do you factor in geopolitical risk with a country like China when you're looking at the long term? Uh, when we look at geopolitical risk, I mean, there's no one line item we can say that's our accounting for geopolitics mm, because mm. unless it actually hits the oil price, you know, most things are geopolitically fade out of the markets within 12 months. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, Arab-Israeli war was the case where it wasn't because it was such a shock to the oil price at that point in time. So we, we don't really have a specific line item for like this does that to growth and therefore this comes it down. Where it may show up more in some of the uncertainties when we look at the volatility numbers on our asset classes saying, well, 
that geopolitical risk, maybe it creates more of a, a premium that needs to be built in for some of the volatility, and so therefore we factor it into, into that regard rather than thinking about the return assumption on asset class. Mm. So final question on China. The population pyramid doesn't look great, and the biggest China bears just say it's going to become a giant Japan. Is that <laughs> Japan's doing great. Have you looked at it recently? Yeah, no, I know. But, Finally. But from, a, from a demographic point of view, it's, it's a constant struggle. Do you think that's overblown? I think it's very much that when Japan had a much more developed market, a much bigger issue around its property market, a lot of companies had a much more exposure to the property sector, a government attitude that was very different than spend to support the market during you know that lost decade of what happened in, in Japan. Whereas in China, you've still got a growing economy. It's still emerging. There's still productivity gains. The demographics can still come through. So there's, there's still a case for saying the growth rate in China is going to be much different. And again, you have a very different structure of a political system in China. So much more uh, directed that can come through. So we don't see China falling into saying it's going to be that lost decade we saw in Japan because of that. We do say, yeah, it's going to be slower growth. It's going to take some restructuring of the economy to deliver the economy. So maybe less around simply investment-led growth, definitely a focus on domestic consumption. So I actually do think if you look at the value valuations in China right now, they're pretty attractive. You think about some of those uh, longer term goals, they're, they're playing, there could be some great returns in China, it's going to come with volatility. And again, that's what people don't like. And also they don't like the fact that there's this political or regulatory risk now overhanging the market. But I mean, a lot of investors look at that and say, well, it is actually very attractively priced. Is that is that reflected, that risk really reflected in the price? And is that okay? As I think about maybe owning an exposure there for three or four years rather than just the one year volatility I'd have to deal with. Yeah, we've had a few uh Investors recently pitched stocks from Hong Kong. So they're seeing what you're seeing, which is the valuations have come in a lot and they're starting to look quite attractive. Yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about individual stocks. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on, which ones? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the fourth uh, theme that we're going to talk about may uh, end up being the biggest theme from a quality of life point of view and also from... uh, where the money goes point of view and that is climate like this decade is going to be a defining decade in terms of investment and change across the world so where how do you see it and if you're making long-term assumptions have we solved it in 10 years <laughs> well, <laughs> have we not solved it but have we corrected the slide yeah i mean uh, there's a whole other thing that's not part of this but when we have a sustainable investment team we're looking at there's there's the mitigation aspect and how you invest around mitigation but more importantly now it's how you invest for adaptation so the fact that the world is just going to be hotter you are probably going to have more natural disasters what does that actually mean and how do you think about the adaptation to that so that's a, another a separate investment theme that I think is building for us. It's really around that fiscal response, the fact that we are seeing uh, a lot more money go towards this. Again, you can look at the US and the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the fact that they had the biggest contribution to, to climate that included, um, or what's happening in Europe. It does vary greatly by region, and there is going to be an impact of things like that cross-border um, adjustment mechanism, what it means in terms of the price of steel, for example, and porting into Europe, what that will mean for the physical buildings of things, what it mean for the, the prices that come through and having to deal with that inflation. But I, I think it does more lately to come back to, it can have a, a really underappreciated positive impact in terms of thinking around if it is successful, you're going to have fewer of those natural events. You're going to have more security around food production, which becomes disinflationary over the longer term if they are successful. Um, and you're also thinking about there's a lot of underappreciated risk of uh, underappreciated productivity enhancements that come with government-directed technology development. So you can think about radar, for example, uh, 
G GPS. That's another one. All these things that were came out of the government as being funded, uh, crowding in other investment that comes through, um, and actually the productivity enhancements that come from that to lift the growth outlook and, and create those investment opportunities around climate technology, for example. But these are all things that, you know, well, we're looking at 10 to, 10 to 15 years now forecast. These are things that might be 20 years or longer, actually, in terms of when they actually come through and have that material impact. Mm. So, Kerry, plenty of assumptions and four key themes there, monetary policy, AI, China, and climate. So let's bring it back to how we can actually take action from this because the purpose of this report is to actually be able to build a portfolio to, I guess, uh, not accommodate, but reflect some of the assumptions that, that you have. So how are we able to take this information and actually put it to work in our portfolios? It comes back to that starting point of the broadest assets you can look at. So if you're thinking about just starting investing and, and building that wealth, many people will just start with buying one company or you know one thing. So think about how you can be much broader across all the opportunities, set, whether it's equities, fixed income, uh, even into alternatives to, to the degree that your the liquidity is, is, is the right thing for you. For us, it's a case of thinking about what does that mean in terms of that stock bond portfolio being 7%, how do we beat it, and everything that sits above that. So across credit, for example, you can move into investment grade or even high yield where, for example, high yield has a lot of equity-like characteristics. If you're worried about the sort of risks around uh, higher, the equity market, the concentration risks, you can still get equity exposure, a higher income, a bit of carry on high yield from the given the fact that you have a very high yield today, uh, roughly 9%, and mitigate some of those risks that may be present in the equity market. You can also move further out in terms of thinking about, well, if I need diversifies my portfolio, not just against the inflation. So that does mean things like real assets to a certain degree, those non-correlated assets, those income providers, such as you know infrastructure or transport. Those are the things that are going to really offset that. They aren't going to be sensitive to the economic cycle. And you get that great pass-through from any inflation that does come through. And you think about that steady income can stream. And that can offset what would be a good protector against a growth shock or recession that came through, which is your fixed income market. You know, Yields fall, you gain from that. It's kind of balancing out the fact that there's more than one risk out there now. Uh, it's not just thinking about stocks and bonds and how you factor those all together. And then you can take those other themes, whether it's AI and technology, you know, who's going to benefit from that? It's going to be more like VC companies, private equity companies. If there's volatility in the market, who's going to benefit from that? It's hedge funds because they do really well when there's wide dispersions and being active. If there's geopolitical risk or concern around energy st uh, sustainability or stability, you know, that's again thinking about um, renewables in a, in a greater sense. They might also be more in focus if there's a greater push in sustainability from governments. You can think about the fact we need to move energy to different places in the world now. Again, feeds through into transport, the needs for different types carriers of energy, LNG versus oil tankers. There's many different ways to play these themes, but I think when you put it back to again in a portfolio, it's making sure you're diversified across a range of asset classes because the thing that has not worked this year is the fact that diversification in two asset classes. So you need to really build that out for the, for the decade ahead. Yeah. So on the diversification point, you know, you want to get non-correlated assets and uh, equities and bonds moved in concert as interest rates rose. And so I guess, do you think that they will, that correlation will hold going forward? And then I guess the other non-correlated assets, you know, you mentioned a, a few there. 
crypto? Does that fall into it? <laughs> uh, that's not one that we forecast. I mean, it's, I was going to ask a, what your long-term assumption was. It has a lot, of, a lot of volatility uh, is the way I would look at it. So I think the, because of that very, very, very high volatility, and we did actually write about this last year, if you put even a small weight in a portfolio, that high volatility just screws everything yeah, up. So yeah. it's more that it's not the asset return, it's the volatility that comes with it and also the regulatory risk. So on the on non-correlated assets, where are you looking for to, to get diversification, like real diversification away from equities? It, it's generally into to real assets. It's those things that, again, have been a challenge for many investors because they're, they're viewed as being illiquid. They're coming more liquid. There's more products that are coming out that are making them more accessible. But there is an issue around, like, these are the things that you require to put your money away for a, a longer period of time. And, again, if you're earlier on your investment uh, journey, that's okay because you probably don't need the access to that money and people over, often overestimate how much liquidity they actually need. But those are the things that have did really well last year when there was a lot of inflation and a lot of uncertainty in the market. Those are the ones that really did perform very well. And again, we think about things like real estate. Those are the ones we've seen the prices and the, the valuation reset come through, which leads to those better returns. But again, correlation, we have the charts to show you the stock bond correlation. Over the last 40 years, it's kind of been negative 0.4. Our forecast is going to be close to zero in a portfolio, but that's over that long horizon, it's going to go up and down, up and down. The important factor is that that correlation is not going to be as negative as it was in the past and is going to be greatly influenced by those inflation spikes we expect to see to come through. And that's why you need those other assets. Now, Kerry, to close out, you know, after a decade of where passive investing has been a reasonably appropriate strategy in times like this where the markets are a bit more volatile, active management does play a pretty important role. And Ren and I often talk about how to uh, select managers or, or the right manager. So, yeah, if you could just provide some insight on on how we should approach manager selection in, in a time like this. I mean, good point. I should have mentioned at the start, all the numbers you see, if anyone wants to go and look at them in the book we publish, they're all median manager expectations and we show the dispersion around top and bottom quartile and there's a big dispersion, right? So the numbers that we quote are going to be greatly influenced by you know who you actually choose to do that. For us, it is a case about being active given that shift around the liquidity and that dispersion that's coming through. In terms of the manager selection, I mean, it really is a focus on thinking about the due diligence and the, can that person deliver on what they say they actually do or are they deviating much against um, what their actual targets are and their process within their uh, investment thesis. So it's really a case of knowing what you're getting. I think in terms of how you select that, it's, it's totally up to you and depends on the different asset classes and the selection and opportunities you have across um, managers. But I think a proven track record is a big one um, and thinking about very much uh, how much they stick to their process or are deviated from that in times of stress. Mm. Well, it's been great to see over the last 12 months, JP Morgan Asset Management listing through ETF some of the uh, actively managed uh, funds that now give us the opportunity to, to, uh, to get behind it. So uh, thank you for today, Kerry. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. We love having you on and uh, very much looking forward to checking in for the 29th long-term <laughs> <laughs> capital market assumptions. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks, Max, guys. Well, Bryce, that was a great conversation. Mm. Always love speaking to Kerry. Always love thinking about what's going to come next in markets. What were some of your 
biggest takeaways? Well, Ren, it'll be great to see their uh, monetary policy predictions play out with rates back to... <laughs> Bryce buys a house and now he's just a cheerleader Inflation for the Inflation back market. to where they are, rates back to where they are. Yeah, I mean, I found it uh, I found it pretty interesting, the artificial intelligence stuff as well. I think the, the climate stuff for me is a reminder that there's been so much noise around miracle weight loss drugs and artificial intelligence and Australia's housing market that we shouldn't miss the forest for the trees. The biggest mega trend of the next decade where the most amount of money is flowing is not in any of those spaces. It's in climate. And the, you know, like the Inflation Reduction Act over in the US is just a euphemism for a heap of climate investment. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing all over the world. As investors, we should be very mindful of that. It felt like ESG was a big investment theme in 2020 and 2021. And then the last year or two, it's been out of favour, but we shouldn't forget the long-term trend. Mm. That shouldn't have been the fourth theme in the paper. It should have been the first is kind of what I'm saying. Your vibe, yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't uh, – I, I don't disagree with you there, Ren, although we had a mate who went to a, a, the AGM for Origin mm. and one of the shareholders stood up and said, the board should question whether climate change is even real as nothing has happened yet. So I think okay. with <laughs> – Nothing has happened yet. Yeah, nothing's happened yet. Right. So with shareholders challenging their boards with uh, comments like that, there is a lot of work to uh, be I think I think there's a key call out that if you have your AGM at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, true, true. most – Shareholder, most retail shareholders who work nine to five jobs can't attend. No, he also included some other uh, great <laughs> questions that were asked. Um, we can't have foreign ownership of our companies. Remember what happened when we realized that we don't manufacture COVID masks here? Don't tell them how many other companies are already foreign owned. Yes, what about uh, <laughs> we shouldn't have foreign investment in this country, we don't need it. We're Aussies, we can do this ourselves. Anyway, we digress, <laughs> we digress. We should close out with uh, one piece of housekeeping and that is our book. It is on sale. It is the perfect present to lead into Christmas. Secret Santa, Chris Kringle, whatever you want to call it, family gifts, passing it on to someone who you think should be getting started on their investing journey in 2024 if, or if you just want to remind yourself on the simplicity of it and why it is enough to be invested in a simple index over a long period of time, then get, then don't stress, just invest is available now. Uh, legendary Aussie investor John Hampton has one of my favorite investing reading quotes. He said, every person should read five investing books. It doesn't matter which five, just read five. And with our two books, Get Started Investing and Don't Stress, Just Invest, you're 40% of the way there. Love it. Well, with that said, you can find both books on our website, equitymates.com. Grab yourself a copy now. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.